I'm Mark Amender, and this is Knowledge Wonderland. Are we on the verge of doomsday? Is Donald Trump an existential threat to the future of the United States? Andrew Sullivan says yes. And he thinks, by the way, that Donald Trump could really win the election. This is the Knowledge Wonderland podcast. I'm Mark Amender. Thank you so much for joining us. More of my exclusive podcast interview with Andrew Sullivan in just a moment. But first, do me a favor. Go to iTunes and review us. Give us four or five stars because we deserve it. This is a great podcast. You're not going to hear Andrew Sullivan anywhere else. Now, I have been accused of many things in my short career as a journalist. Hating posts to favor Hillary Clinton. False. Anti-conservative. False. An Andrew Sullivan worshiper. Well, that's true, unabashedly. I disagree with him on a number of, of subjects. But he is an icon. I consider him to be a civil rights leader, though he would never consider himself one, as much as a digital media pioneer and a public intellectual. You know him from his work at the New Republic, from his many books, including Virtually Normal, his incredible blog and website, The Daily Dish, which started out alone. He was an entrepreneur and then moved to the Atlantic, and that's where I met Andrew, and then left the Atlantic became for several years a money-making, self-sustaining journalistic enterprise. Andrew folded the dish a little while ago, took a hiatus, went to let his brain decompress, and boom, back in a big way with a very, very long but worth the read piece in New York Magazine. The title is, America Has Never Been So Ripe for Tyranny. Now, this is not a fusillade against Donald Trump so much as it is against the system that has failed so many Americans who support him. You have a lot of men, white working class men and women, who may still be part of the privileged power structure, whatever that means, but whose actual power to get things done in the world, their ability to derive any meaning from their work, has declined precipitously over the past 20 or 30 years. And yet, in some ways, we are supposed to, as elites, look down on these people and not really realize they're suffering. Um, And you write a lot about their suffering in this piece. And their suffering feeds a lot of other things, which we'll get into. But I'm I'm interested in how you arrived at that. I I just listened and inferred from... Everything that's already out there. I mean, just you, I mean, whether I, I should probably have gone myself to Trump rallies and so on to to uh, to gauge this. But you, but it, it's so palpable um, anyway. Uh, and of course, the extremity of the emotions right now has to be understood. Objectively speaking, in terms of the American economy, there is no other economy in the world that is doing as well as the U.S. is. Uh, maybe Germany, but they're struggling. Friends of mine that are in Germany tell me about the German press, and they are they they they, they regard the mass movement behind Trump as a, a clearly fascist movement. Um, they they and and what their puzzlement is 
uh, as they express it, is, well, given how well America is doing, why there? I mean, why now? Given, you know, why not eight years ago? Why not, um, or why not elsewhere? And the truth is elsewhere, it's also happening. Um, but I think here particularly, you know, the white working class or the white middle class um, had globally incredible privileges. I mean, for the post-war period. Um, and there was an expectation of rising living standards um, and, and greater and greater happiness, you know, the American dream. And it kind of came to a bit of a standstill in the 70s. And I think there have been various attempts since then to reboot it artificially, whether that be through the sort of big tax cut, Keynesian reflation of Reagan, um, uh, or subsequently things like the housing bubble or the tech bubble. All attempts to create more value than actually is there because we expect it and need it and want it. Even though, of course, since the Cold War, we're now engaged in a much different global economy with hundreds of millions of other people competing for the same jobs. At the same time, the technology is obviously making the kind of jobs that would give people meaning and status. I think that's also critical status in the world. Uh, have slowly disappeared. Um, I mean, one specific that I, I, I haven't drilled down on, but which strikes me as plausible, is that you know, something like 20% of working class white men are involved in jobs that require driving of some sort, whether it be transportation, whether it be truck driving, uh, whether it be all the things that require you to move around or to move shit around from one place to another. And if driverless cars are coming, you know, that's another form of autonomy and agency that is going to be taken away from people. Uh, and and at the same time, I also think, and maybe this is because of the book I'm writing, that the, that the slow collapse of a really viable and actually working religious framework for people that provides meaning to their lives in the absence of material comfort uh, has been disappearing. It's either been disappearing to a completely phony prosperity gospel, which is really just disappearing into, <laughs> into a kind of religion of capitalism, yeah. which they still can't attain. Um, and, you know, Trump in some ways is a prosperity gospel preacher um, uh, uh, in, some, in some form. The New York Times Magazine story made, made that point rather, rather well, I thought. But there you are. You're in middle America. You're in a middle class job. The, the, you're earning less than you were 10 years ago or standing still. Some costs of some things, especially education and healthcare, have gone up. Um, and, and you're also observing, and I think this is the other thing, a, a new America emerging around you, uh, which, which seems to have not only no real role for you, but it even, even kind of marginalizes you still further, at least in your own mind. Uh, and that's what we have, massive status anxiety among, as well as genuine, I think it's hard for those of us that don't, that, that, that have got college or graduate degrees and are working, even though for us, I mean, if even just incredibly lucky people like me and you, you know, working in a, working in a, a very esoteric, we, our jobs are disappearing too. What I get paid for what I do now is much less than it would have been 10 to 15 years ago. So all of us are going through this process, but for people without the psychological, emotional, spiritual resources to withstand this, it's, it's a grim, grim prospect. And suddenly someone comes along and says, I can solve all of this. These people are to blame. Those people are to blame. If we get rid of those people, we punish those people. 
everything will be fine and that you won't believe how many great jobs are going to come back to America. And I think that's just simply an incredibly hard siren call to resist, even though most, most of those people, I would wager, don't really believe he can do it. They believe in, um, Sarah Palin used this word to describe Donald Trump once, but I, I use it in the way that Virginia Postrel does it. They believe in the glamour of Donald Trump. Yeah. They, they believe in access to that world more than they do his ability to follow through on these promises, to build a wall, to bring, job, to bring jobs back, to get money back into the economy. There's no reason for them to believe that. There's plenty of reason to believe the glamour because they see it every day. Yes, and it's every poor person's idea of what a rich person would be like. <laughs> it's, 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 it's what they would do if they had right. a billion dollars, which is get as much, and you know, get take, as many women, have as many luxury resorts as possible. Put your name, around, put your name and, on everything and yeah. take no, take, don't take shit from anyone. Um, in fact, in fact, dole out shit to everybody and anyone. Right. Um, and there's a kind of vicarious relief in this process that he provides. And, and there's also, uh, he's, he's astonishing and obviously content, completely empty, but nonetheless insistent uh, claims of authority. Now, I think one has to have watched The Apprentice for 12 seasons, which happily for my own sanity, I never did, uh, to see that he's... He's the decider, right? He is the guy who has the final authority. They built up a mythology of him as the this sort of quintessentially successful businessman who's gotten things done, who can do anything. Um, as he as he put it, I alone can solve. At one point, when he was referring, by the way, to, to Syria of all places. Um, so he knows this is what people want. They want daddy too. They've lost faith. Uh, their, their fundamentalism, which was a kind of crutch in modernity, is creaking and collapsing. And they have to have transgender bathrooms and gays marrying each other. Um, and here along comes somebody who just says, I'm daddy. I'm the daddy you always wanted. I, everything's going to be okay. Uh, I understand you and hear you, and I will make it all better. And this is, this is what I was really trying to get at in the, the essay about the tyrannical impulse, because essentially what the tyrant does is to relieve you of the burden of self-government. He right. relieves you of the necessity to figure this out for yourself. And uh, they, there is a huge relief in surrendering your agency, which doesn't seem to be getting where, anywhere, to someone else's agency. And this, of course, is an absolutely classic fascist move. Um, and this is what he's doing. Now, I, I, I'm not... And his ability to... Really wow these crowds and these rallies um, is is another uh, classic fascist. Did, does metaphor. he know though what he is doing in that sense, or or is his is the fascism overdetermined by who he is and and what's going on in the world? Yeah, he, he is essentially uh, he's in, he is instinctually. I mean, the one thing you know from going all the way back in his life in his public life, and you know, go back to see who what he was saying before. This, these are not things he's constructed to get elected. These are things he believes. This is how he sees the world. He's always seen it this way. Uh, and so, insofar as he's fascistic, he, is, he, he loves power. He loves bullying others. He loves, he loves punishing the weak. Uh, and he sees the world entirely in his, as a zero-sum game. There's no element in his thinking, it seems to me, that's non-zero-sum. In fact, he has no understanding of any human relationship 
which could be beneficial for both parties at once. That's why he has no understanding of trade. It has to be at your expense. If someone else does right. well, you lost, someone won. The job in life is to make sure you're the one that wins and that other guy loses. That's his entire life. And it's fueled by obvious massive insecurity. Um, I mean, the, the insecurity of this man is just, is, is the most obvious and tragic and poignant part of him. Andrew, you and I see this, and you've put it into incredibly eloquent terms, but we've seen this. We've seen this. A lot of people have seen this. We see it instantly. Do people who support him see it? And if they don't see it, why don't they see it? And if they do see it, why doesn't it matter? It doesn't matter because he's, he's tapping into how they feel. And at this point, that's all they really care about. Um, and they, they hate the other side and they hate professional politicians. They think all politicians have failed them because they have bought critically the argument that the country really is a disaster, the economy is terrible, that the, that the world is falling apart, all these other things that have been fed into the narrative uh, by the right-wing echo chamber now for many years under Obama. And they also believe, right. uh, they, I mean, the reason I was, I was not surprised, I, obviously I was on sabbatical, so I really didn't say so publicly, and so everything I say now could be regarded as complete bullshit. Well, you, I, you and I but, talked a bit during your sabbatical, and, and you, you were saying some of these things, so I can okay, back well, up thanks. the fact that, <laughs> okay. that you, you had some of these ideas, but yeah. I, had, I was nervous about this guy, very nervous, um, uh, because, for a simple reason, I watch Fox News, Yeah. and, and a, a lot of my liberal friends would never be seen dead. I watch it every day on the Stairmaster. Um, and does, that, does that get your heart rate up? Does it like help? It, it really helps the cardio. The yeah. elliptical. Uh, I should. I should try that. <laughs> Fox News Plus an elliptical will reduce your body fat. Like, like if no I go to the Equinox in West Hollywood and ask them to put Fox News on, what do you think will happen to me? I'm not really sure. That's a great social experiment. But anyway, you should go to the WeHo, WeHo, the Equinox in WeHo, and ask for Pilates and see if you get my husband because he's he's doing Pilates there. Oh yeah. well, I uh, I will do that. Um, I think. I think. Anyway, um, but leaving all that aside. Yes. Um, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Well, we, were, I was... we were talking about, I mean, we were just talking about the, we were talking about how people have bought oh, into Fox a version News. of, yeah. yeah. So people... when you watch Fox News and you ask yourself, uh, what would the candidate say who would most respond to the anxieties and concerns that a Fox News viewer would be experiencing having absorbed this view of the world for the last seven years? And it would be Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, none of the others capture the, the, the sheer uh, paranoia, terror, and chaos that they see unfolding in front of them every day on the television, in which the president is an alien, a secret Muslim, deliberately destroying the United States, uh, in league with our enemies, uh, who isn't actually an American in the first place. Um, and that's why 65% of his supporters put as their most, the most important plank that he supported, the ban on all Muslims coming into the country. Uh, because they really do believe that we're in a constant war, that ISIS is in every house, is every town, is about to take over, aided and abetted by the government. In other words, that his butler uh, is not as atypical as you might imagine. I'm sure. Um, and and that, that, that's been built up for several years. And once you've built the level of hysteria up to that, up to that degree, you need someone of the, of the sort of dynamism and, and, and extremism of Trump 
to make sense of it, you know, or to or to see if he alone is capable of grappling that. The others don't seem to be even addressing it. Although I will, I'll point out, for example, about this, that Marco Rubio, the point where he started repeating himself yeah. um, in New Hampshire, was repeating the meme that the president has deliberately, willfully destroyed this country because he hates this country. Right. Uh, so this is not just Trump. Rubio was trying to get some of that feeling because that is what they all believe, which is completely nuts. Um, this, the Republican establishment for so long has has propagated a bunch of these beliefs but never actually believed them. Which no, which and created they've never this, corrected right. anybody. They've and never they never, said, right. this isn't true. No one, no one ever in the Republican establishment has ever had a good word to say for this president. But, but at the same time, the, but the, the establishment, the elites, themselves didn't believe in it enough to take it to its logical conclusion. And here comes Donald Trump, someone who actually does and has the means, co-opting now the tools of technology and, and finance and everything else um, to make these ideas the actual, not, not the whispered centerpiece of the Republican Party, but the actual balls-out platform. Yes. Um, and no wonder the, you know, the, I mean, the Republican elites lost their shit and had absolutely no idea what to do, which brings me to what I think is the scariest thing in the piece. And if you think about it, in one way, it could be the saving grace for all, for all this, or it could also just be the, the exception that proves, proves the rule here. I mean, we might go. We might go from a country that voted Barack Obama in twice, with um, more than fifty percent of the vote, to a country that votes in Donald Trump. I mean, Barack yeah. Obama, Donald Trump, a whiplash. If and and you, you answer this in the piece. But if all of these trends that we talk we just talked about jobs not meaningful, social isolation, globalism, the fundamentalism yielding to modernism and pluralism, why did we elect Barack Obama? Um, how did Barack Obama? fool us, in a sense, into, uh, into electing him? Well, I think that's not the right question, to be, to, be, to, be, um, you know, to, to be honest. I think that the question is, did Obama create Trump? Uh, that, 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 in fact, Trump is, in some ways, almost characterologically and politically, aesthetically, uh, temperamentally, and ideologically, the antithesis. As Obama, Obama was to George W. Bush. Yes, and that often, it's often a contrast, but rarely has a president like Obama, by whose very face and physicality represented a transformation in many people's eyes, uh, required those who could not accept that shift, not just to sort of move on, but to actively repudiate and to expunge this creature from the political bloodstream. And Trump is that kind of expunction. They, 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 they really don't want to believe that Obama was ever president. Um, and, you know, we say, we're talking right now, by the way, about this crisis in a, in a moment when Obama's approval ratings are 50%. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, and where Obama's actually, you know, his approval ratings are not far where Reagan was at the time. Reagan was about to, 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 to go higher than Obama ever will because we're more polarized. But, but that's, so you have a two-term president who's sort of transformed the country. And, and, and yet we have this extraordinarily virulent uh, attempt to annul it, really, to nullify it, um, to say it didn't really happen. Um, and, you know, of course, I think that comes down to some of these frustrations, but also, of course, I, I can't help but feel that it has something to do with race and, uh, and, and also the, 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 the sense of a certain part of white America that they've been completely left behind. If you're a magnanimous, though, man... To use a word in your piece, a magnanimous uh, uh, man of the, let's say, the classical left, um, mm -hmm. and you understand 
both the structural factors that have created this, this acute sense of frustration, and you also are, understand um, and are aware of the, the cultural touchstones that set people off, the, particularly the sort of revolution in political correctness in college campuses um, uh, and other developments of, of that cast. What do you do? What's the proper position to take then? How do you, how do you the truth is not, Obama, I mean, how do you not sanction the, the obvious latent racism in a lot of this, um, but at the same time, be compassionate about many of the other factors that feed it? Well, I, I honestly think Obama expressed exactly this feeling in 2008. Um, you know, the famous gaffe of his, where he was allegedly saying these people just cling to their guns in religion. Uh, was if once you fully looked at the quote and the context of it, he was saying to fellow Democrats, don't look down on these people. Do not feel contempt for them. Their jobs have been destroyed. Their life has been, they've been forgotten. Um, their, their economic fortunes are, are, are tough. Um, of course, in that context, they're going to cling to things like guns and religion. Uh, uh, and that's not a function of their bigotry or racism function of their economic problems, which we have not addressed. But, but the, the awful truth is there is nothing to be done. And that is, to some extent, the great, you know, sinking reality that, 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 that we can't undo the fact that China and India are now part of the global economy. We can't undo uh, the advance of technology, of automation. And the, the expansion uh, of compassion to gay people and transgender people. All of that is, un, is it's undoable. It's, it can't be reversed. But much more importantly, the economics of this are very hard to counter. Um, and the, the, the forces behind this are so huge. So, for example, Trump's proposal is to essentially put up walls, literally and figuratively, uh, tariffs around the United States and, uh, and uh, you know, that... I don't, do we really call it a, I don't know what, it's such an absurd thing, <laughs> right. but this, this wall made of like gold, presumably with his name all over it. Um, uh, that's, but of course we all know those of us who were sane know that, um, if, if you really want to punish this, people have the, the goods in the Walmart and the food they eat, like go up massively in, in price, um, have, have companies that can't, you know, Protectionism is not going to bring jobs back to the United States. Nothing is bringing these jobs back. And you know, there's a I think there's a, a movie scene where was it was it Bullworth or something where it's a fantasy in which the president tells people, look, these jobs are not coming back. Uh, and the usual panacea, the panacea we told ourselves in the 1990s, would somehow make this all different, which is education, turns out not to be a solution, um, because. Even if you're highly educated, the next people on the chopping block are precisely the educated white upper middle classes in terms of what technology can do, what globalization can do. What we have to begin to think about is reconstituting communities of meaning from the ground up in a different context. Um, the other thing you can do, I think, in terms of relieving the insecurity is, uh, is healthcare, which I paradoxically Obama has done. The one thing the white working poor were particularly stricken by was the lack of accessible health care and the anxiety and insecurity that comes with not having that. And, and he's provided that level of security for exactly this demographic 
the white working poor, um, and yet has been despised by it. And they're all up in arms trying to abolish the one thing that will actually feasibly and tangibly make their lives less insecure. Which is so precisely this, why Republicans on a concentrated level insisted that that be the centerpiece of their campaign um, in these past elections. I mean, knowing the, the broad transfer of wealth to these people that this actually represented. When you think about it, Obama has essentially offered these people health insurance. And Trump is the person who made a name for himself on television by looking into somebody's eyes and telling them you're fired from your job. Yes. <laughs> this is a conversation most human beings are very reluctant to have with another human being. It's a horrible conversation to have. Um, he rejoiced in it, relished it every day, every time he was on TV. That's what they love him for, his ability to be unbelievably callous and cruel in such a delicate and difficult moment. So there's it, obviously something else is going on here. Obviously, what's, what's underlying a lot of this is, is a cultural anxiety about the nature of multicultural America. And indeed, I think globally, uh, especially in Europe, of real anxiety about losing control of one's destiny and, and losing control of the meaning of one's country, which has always historically been bound up in ethnicity. Or, even, or religion. Or religion. In Europe, um, right. But, but, but homogeneity of Europe, up until, um, you know, up until 20, 30 years ago, the cultural homogeneity, the ethnic homogeneity of Europe was striking. And when people said, I believe in England or I'm British, they had a very clear understanding. This is the same anxiety that's fueling Brexit. It, it's, it's, do we have a country anymore? Uh, can, what does it mean to say that we're English? Uh, and when, when you have mass immigration, which is a function of Britain's uh, economic vitality in comparison with the rest of the EU. And remember, in Britain, there are all the people, all the low-wage immigrant workers that are coming to England have a legal right to be there on the U.S. Imagine if right. every Mexican had a legal right to come and work in the right. United States, what the response would be. Um, uh, and even when you point out in the Brexit context that the economic damage to the United Kingdom would be severe, and the the possibility of restoring our trading relations with Europe distant, our ability to negotiate a free trade agreement with the United States would be, would be, would be pretty hard. People still argue that even though Britain will be poorer, better to be poorer, better to be in a recession and still control your own destiny, to be able to say to people, you can't come in here, than, than to be wealthier and yet be part of some amorphous entity called multicultural Europe. In, in, in which they don't feel they belong to and which they don't feel they can control. So that's, I think, I think we're also reaching a crisis of the multicultural country, uh, whether such a country, which has existed for only a tiny, you know, fraction of, 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 of human experience, uh, whether it can survive. Well, there's a lot to digest in what Andrew has said. So join us next week for part two of my conversation with him. Andrew will tell us what he's up to, his next big project, the book, how the media should handle Donald Trump, and how and whether anybody can possibly defeat him. Be sure to follow this podcast, Knowledge Wonderland, on iTunes or wherever podcasts are sold or vended for free. Acast distributes our podcast, hosts it. Thank you to them. Kenshi Hikari is our producer. Thinking V supplies the music. I'm Mark Amador. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.